I got off the plane and I called my wife and here's the way that conversation went. I'm done with AA. I'm done with not drinking. I'm on the way to the bar. I don't care. I'm gone. I'm checking out. Because I was ready at that particular time to leave the world that I had been gifted. Her, our, our relationship with my wife, my kids, and everything else. And I was ready to give all that up for that bottle of Bailey's or that next drink. And she said, I'm going to do this one time in your life. I'm going to talk you home, but I will only talk you home one time. You need to realize that you're an untreated alcoholic. And until you get a program, this is not going to get better. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and others. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, to recovery as a whole, and newcomers to our program, Sober Speak. Our previous episode, episode number 33, uh, included Shannon M., and Shannon M.'s uh, episode is entitled AA, OA, which is Overeaters Anonymous, and Al-Anon, Triple Winners. So go back and listen to that one if you didn't get a chance to. And our episode today, episode number 34, is going to be, is going to feature Greg C. And uh, Greg C is going to talk uh, about several things on the podcast, but things that uh, um, I noted and I thought were interesting, or he's going to talk at length about the spiritual malady of the alcoholic. He's going to talk about his life as the gratitude man, as he calls it. And he's going to talk about his first 363 days in sobriety, what it meant, and what happened on day number 364. This is a podcast about recovery centered around the Alcoholics Anonymous 12 Steps of Recovery. Uh, This is a program for those considering recovery, those who are in recovery, and those who got sober a long time ago. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. If you're enjoying the podcast, uh, please reach out to us and let us know what you think at feedback at SoberSpeak.com. And also, if you go to our website, SoberSpeak.com, and you click on the Contact Us tab, you can email us there. But there's also a way to leave us a voicemail. Uh, There's a little uh, microphone there. Uh, You can leave us a 90-second voicemail, and we would absolutely love to hear from you. Uh, Keep in mind, uh, a couple of program notes. We are now on Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio. You can even cue us up on Alexa. All you got to do is say, hey, Alexa, play Sober Speak podcast. Please remember, we do not. Speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. But that's enough of that. Now let's dive into this episode with Greg C. Well, hello, everybody, and we are sitting here with Mr. Greg, Greg C., in fact. Uh, Greg, you want to go ahead and uh, identify yourself and give your sobriety date if you choose? Absolutely happy to be here. Um, Greg C., sobriety date, 11-27-2009, and as we do this in 18, it's it's getting almost pretty close to that nine-year mark. What a big, big accomplishment it seems. That is, and I, I remember you when you came in, and so uh, I know Greg. Uh, he goes to my uh, home group here in the Frisco, Texas area, um, and uh, I was looking forward to having him on here. So, uh, you know, speaking of your sobriety day, let me just go ahead and start there. Um, you uh, have this, uh, uh, what do you call it, just just way, way you introduce yourself in meetings, Right. You say, usually you say, you don't give a specific date. You say a random day in 09. And I'm sure there's some sort of story or some sort of thought behind that. I don't think, I don't know if I've ever asked you. So let's just get that out of the way. So I did um, start saying random day in 2009 as a way to remember that today is no different than the first day that I was sober or the first day I came into this world. The sun comes up and the sun goes down. And the reason that I do that is because it reminds me at the start of every meeting that today is just one 24-hour period. 
And it is a way to say, this is a random day, just like it was in 2009 when I became sober. Um, the month of November, I will announce my, my actual date in the month of November for, uh-huh. for people, 11-27-09, so that we can um, recognize it as my birthday in the month of November. But most of the time, it's a random day in 2009. So 11 out of 12 months... You announce your sobriety day. By the way, we do that here in Texas. We tell everybody our sobriety day. People think we're bragging, but we're actually just trying to say, you know, this thing does work. So 11 out of the 12 months, you're saying random day in 09, but in November, you will say the actual day, correct? That is correct. All right. (laughs) And I do this nationwide, too. So every meeting that I go to outside of Frisco, Texas, of my home group, I do this worldwide. So I've gone to meetings in Hawaii. I've gone to meetings, um, you know, over in Italy and all kinds of places. And I always say, Greg C., my, my sobriety date's a random day in 2009. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> all right, Mr. Greg C. All right, so if I remember right, when you came in, and I don't know, ex- I don't know the details of this, but that's why I bring people in here to sober speak because I get to find out actually while we're doing the recording. There was something to do when you came into the program. You had a, like a, a brain injury or something of that of that nature. Do I remember that correctly? It is. Um, so I had brain surgery in '08, and I had another. So that's a year before you got sober. You had that brain is correct. surgery, and was it was it. Did was the brain surgery anything to do with your alcoholism or was it other related? Completely non-related. Okay. It was a pituitary macroemedema is what it's called, which is a tumor of the pituitary section of the brain. Was it a malignant tumor or a non-malignant tumor? It is a uncontrolled cell growth is the way we, so we don't classify it either way. It's just an uncontrolled cell growth is okay. kind of the way we think of it. Okay. And then in 2009, I had a radiation treatment. And because they either didn't get it all or it had come back or something. And so we had to go in and do a one-time radiation treatment with a gamma knife radiation treatment, which is where they a actually... gamma knife? I know it sounds worse than what it is. <laughs> um, it's actually just two points of radiation that come together in the pea size and hit a tumor and therefore killing the tumor. And so it's a non-invasive... That sounds like something a superhero would be using. It absolutely does. And it's not... The knife side of it is because you actually do an operation without actually cutting in. And so that's where the gamma and the knife came up, is they don't actually have to cut in in order to get, um, to get the tumor. Okay. So I did that in 09, and the interesting thing was, is I went to my brain surgeon, and I said, um, hey, this isn't working for me, because at this particular time, um, alcohol caused me a, a very, very bad headache, which is because on top of being an alcoholic, I also have an allergy to alcohol where I actually swell. And so my nose and my eyes swell when I ingest any type of alcohol, which is a physical reaction to alcohol. Wow. And so I went to the doctor and I said, hey, I want to do something different. We're going to have to find something because if alcohol is not going to work, I'm going to go to whatever I need to. And he told me in September of 2009, he said, you need to quit. He said, you have got to stop. I'm going to kill the brain cells that you have left if we have to do more surgeries or anything like that, and I need you to stop killing your brain cells. So as a great alcoholic that I was, I went that night, and I went to see how drunk I could actually get. Wow. And so I went that night and got really, really hammered and spent four days in bed afterwards in extreme pain. And so there was a struggle there, which is, how can I get satisfied when alcohol, I can't drink enough to get satisfied, which is part, that's where my drinking had led as I just couldn't get enough. And so that's when um, I knew that there was a problem, but I wasn't really going to recognize the problem. And so I kept trying to drink through it. <laughs> and... I mean, that's funny and not funny, trying to drink through it. Uh, when you right. say try to drink through it, does that mean you... Explain that a little bit more. So even in the big book, it says we try to cut out whiskey and try to do, you know, limit our drinking, do all that type of stuff. So I tried everything. I tried from, can I have a shot in the morning and then go until lunch and have a shot at lunch and then go till dinner. I tried spreading every type of alcohol you could ever imagine out to try to figure out some way that I could continue to drink and not have the adverse effects that it was causing in my life. Right. And I tried everything you can imagine to see if that, if that could work. Nothing was working, and all, all that I was was starting to become bitter and agitated and just 
uh, just an just a very angry person. So drinking through it was not a good plan. It seems like I tried, but no, it's not a good plan. But as alcoholics, right, we try it, yeah. and and I tried it to the best of my ability, and I kept trying it. So. All right, so um, okay, so something that well, let's talk about then a little bit before that, right? I right. guess kind of what brought you into the program. And I'm, by the way, I know I had asked you to bring something over that would you do like a reading, if you will. Yes. And I believe you have something queued up there. So why don't we go into that first reading that you have there? I do, and you know, on page two, it talks about we had to be important. I'd prove to the world that I was important. Um, do you this- know? I, I just have to stop you. I. Noticed that when I got when I first was sober, and I've rarely heard it quoted. And I used to I used to use that phrase while I was walking around and meditating in my neighborhood. And it's just so interesting that you brought it up because I thought the same thing. I, I'm not saying I did a good job at it, but I was much like Bill Wilson, right? right? But I did. I was trying to prove to the world that I was important. So anyway, I interrupted you. Go That's ahead. Right. What are your thoughts? So on what's that? interesting is I'm an only child. My I, my father. Guess w- what I am. An only child. I'm an only child. How about that? You and I. So my father... And, and people don't know this from, from uh, hearing on the podcast, but we look exactly alike as well. We do. Yeah, same because, height, same... Yeah, same height, same <laughs> weight. That's a joke. <laughs> Greg, <laughs> Greg, what are you, six? About 6'5". About 6'5", six yeah. Six yeah. And I'm not 6'5". <laughs> that way. About a foot lower or something <laughs> like that. All right. So anyway, go right ahead. So I... um. The interesting thing, being an only child, my father was not in the picture when I was two years old, and then my mom got remarried when I was nine, so there was a big gap without a male figure. I was the only um, child, and so this whole vision of having to be important came from my head, because I was important at home because I was the only one there. And so for some reason, I always had to be important. And so if I look back at my drinking, when I first started drinking it was to be important and to be special. So what I did was is I would always provide the alcohol. I'm the one that in high school, everybody would get together and I would find a way to get the alcohol because that made me important. That made me the person everybody came to. Mm-hmm. And this continues into my professional career. Mm. And so I end up in a big consulting firm and guess what? I have to be important. Because when I got into consulting, I was supposed to have answers that the client may not have. And so, therefore, I continued this thought that I have to be important to a stage where I realized that I couldn't be important anymore, and the only thing that filled in the gap was that I could continue to drink, and I was important when I was drinking. I was important at the bar. I can't tell you how many, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars I've spent buying other people drinks, because I'm the guy in the bar that would buy everybody a drink, Mm -hmm. because that made me important. So this continues, and being important is not something that somebody did to me. This is some malady that was there from a very young age that for some reason I got in my head that I had to be important. And so that just continued to drive why I drank and what I was doing and everything within my life. And so when I got sober to try to figure out, you know, kind of what's going on, Mm -hmm. you know, when we start working through... Um, our steps that we work through. We start working through a program of recovery and we start uncovering things. Um, and I, I, I used to say this a lot in meetings. I haven't said this lately just because there's other things. But um, I used to always say, when I first was asked to really do an inventory of my life, I thought it was a movie. Right? I thought I was so important that everybody would want to hear my story. <laughs> you know. And when I sat down to do it, it just wasn't that interesting. <laughs> It was just not that great. Just so, another bozo on the bus. It's just another bozo on the bus. And so what happens is, is you realize through the program of recovery that we're not as important as what we believe that we were. And comfort for me was to feel like I don't have to be that important. And that's really where my recovery started, was I didn't have to be that important. And so that's what I've really been working on. I don't chair a lot of meetings, and it's really interesting of why I don't chair a lot of meetings. For me to chair a meeting, again, and I've, I've held big business conferences, hundreds of people, I've spoke in front of a lot of different audiences. When I go to a meeting, I'm there to take in. 
you want to sit in the back seat and soak it in and I get it. Right. And, and that's the way that I get the most out of what I, I, I need to from meetings is to be in the back seat and listen instead of what I've spent the majority of my life trying to do is be important and be that center of attention. So, and this is something I've also heard. I, I thought I heard somebody reference the fact, and this is a kind of an interesting part of me. We'll see how this fits into your story. I'm sure it's part of it. Were you an MMA fighter at one point? Is this correct? Do, did I hear that right? No, I wasn't. Um, <laughs> what, what's interesting was, is my sons were. So both my sons trained um, here in Frisco with a gym that would be considered kind of a mixed martial arts gym. And... I was going to start training at the gym when the brain tumor came up. And then once the brain tumor came up, there's no way that I could afford to be hit in the head at all. And so therefore, no, I never did get to that stage from a perspective of what I wanted to do. But yeah, I was ready to sign up to start training and start um, training in karate and start working through belts and and, and work towards that. My guess is you would be very good at it if you were able to uh, do it. I, a... I never was a fighter, <laughs> so I have no clue if I would have been good at it. Um, but at that stage of my life, again, and when you're looking for importance, right. right, that's part of, was that part of the sickness, is that I wanted to be that important. Well, let me go back to the brain injury thing. So has that been remedied since you got into AA? And I know I'm kind of going all over the map here. but So the way that it stands today is that um, I'm really a medical miracle. So I have actually um, gone past all of the symptoms and everything that, that came with that. And, and so, what were the symptoms, by the way? So I had a grand mal seizure in 2008, which is how they found the brain tumor. Wow. And then just from a perspective of... And then you'd never had one of those before? I'd never had one, and it had been there for years. Wow. And so when they removed it, um, it caused some, some, some problems. And then in 2009, when they did the radiation, it was even more problems. And through the program of recovery, part of what I was able to do is have a relationship with my higher power to say, you know what? There's only so much that I can fix. The damage that was caused from radiation is not something that can be healed. There is not a medicine. There's not a surgery. There's nothing that they can do. There's not an implant. There's nothing that they can do to solve or to heal the damage that's done to the pituitary. And so through the program of recovery, I had gained a relationship with my higher power and made a, I guess, a pact. And my prayer was, and my higher power is God. And I said, God, if I do everything while I'm here on this planet that I can physically do myself to get better, will you just meet me half the way? Will you just do what you can and do the part that's meant for me if I continue to live the life that, I, that, that I'm living? At that time, I, I was sober. And so that's when I started, if you will, living these principles, not only in the people around me, but my family and everything else. And so, miraculously, my higher power God has healed, and I am 100% recovered, and I am what many would call a medical miracle, because I do continue to live a normal life, and I'm healthier than I've ever been. What would happen if you drink again? Do you have any idea? I mean, obviously, the alcoholism uh, would uh, take off, but would that? do you have any ideas if that would ha have an adverse effect on your brain? I do know as the last really big drunk that I, that I told you about that it spent four days in bed, um, vision goes to almost nothing. So I start looking through about a Coke bottle size. My vision goes, pain is in increased. Um, heart rate is, it, it, it just in increases because of the amount of pain. Um, long term wise, that would do damage um, to everything surrounding that pituitary. So physically, um, yes, it would probably have its damage. The biggest thing that it would damage um, is like any other alcoholic, is that it's the first drink. I have to stay away from the first drink because I don't have an off switch. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was talking to someone who was trying to determine if they were an alcoholic or not, and they said, well, I have one glass of vodka two times a week. Am I an alcoholic? And I'm like, I wish, th I, I, I can't tell them whether they're an alcoholic or not, but I can say one thing. I wish that one glass of vodka was enough. 
and there is no stop. And so one glass to me doesn't seem to me to be enough for me. And there was no stop. I would continue until I couldn't go anymore. Now, obviously, with the brain surgery, that came to the point where I literally would drink, you know, three or four drinks, and I'm in bed. I can't see. The pain's incredible. And I tried to drink through it, but I couldn't. And so the alcoholism kicks off within, for, for me, as the first drink. And so I stay away from the first drink. I stay completely clear of it because I don't want to know. Because I know that what's in my mind, this is progressive. And I know that my next drink is going to be right back where it left off. And unfortunately, I don't think there's any stopping. I think it would be a, a path of me just leaving a path of destruction, which I left early, you know, early on in my drinking. Mm-hmm. So let's, uh, let's uh, go back a little bit before we get into the recovery piece. And that is uh, when I, before you get into recovery uh, on the timeline here, mm-hmm. what do you want to, what do you want to share today regarding your, your background and how you got up to AA? I mean, take us through some major milestones and what you think is important for listeners to know. So the interesting thing was um, my first um, my first meeting was birthday night at the Frisco Group, mm. and um, it was a date with my next door neighbor who I ended up marrying. We were not both in the program. Um, in fact, I don't even know if she realized that I was an alcoholic, but she had asked me on a date and said, "Hey, would would you come to me with this, and then we can go to dinner afterwards?" And I said, "Sure." And I say this, and I the reason I always say it like this, I want everyone to hear this out. I thought that I was going to go watch the TV show or movie or rendition of an AA meeting. That's what I appeared, was that I'm going to go there and I'm going to watch all these freaks <laughs> tell their story, and this is going to be entertaining. Um, at birthday night, everybody shares. Maybe like five. Sandra Bullock will get up there and talk right. about her experience in the rehab center. Yeah, I got right. you. You know, and people are going to tell about driving cars through bridges and or off bridges and stuff like that. and. <laughs> And so what happened is, is I, I go to this meeting and everyone shares for about three to five minutes and about halfway through the meeting, um, it's the most real people I've ever met in my entire life. And guess who is the biggest freak in the room, which is me. Mm-hmm. And I realized that everything everybody was talking about, I said, I didn't realize that that was a drinking problem. And if what they're talking about <laughs> is a drinking problem, I've got a lot of a drinking problem. Right. And so I left that meeting knowing that there was something with me that was wrong and that I had to address and I had to fix because that all seemed normal to me and all the people that spoke seemed like they had all their stuff together and I seemed like I was falling apart. So Very interesting. So you went to the birthday meeting on a date. You're listening to the people share up there and all of a sudden things clicked in your head and you thought, I need to reevaluate myself here and my, uh, a relationship, if you will, with alcohol. That is correct. And so did you go to a meeting the next day or? No, it took about a week. Okay. And then I spent 363 days going to meetings. And as I say this, this is not the way to recover. So I spent 360, not every day for 363 days, but for the next 363 days, and I'll explain why the 363rd day makes a difference. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I just went to meetings and I kept listening to people and that somewhat, and I say somewhat, I did stay sober, but that didn't heal the malady. And so for 363 days. And so, and just for people that are listening out there, when you say the malady, right, I know what you're talking right. about. We have, why don't you talk about the malady a little bit and then we'll go to the 360. So something happened before my first drink. And it goes back to this having to be important. Um, the drink was my solution to being important. It wasn't the problem with me feeling that I had to be important. There was something that was different in me and having to be that important and to, to be that person that was not comfortable in my own skin. So that had to be the first thing. The first thing had to be in me. The drink did nothing more than comfort that feeling or somewhat calm it down that I, I, I had that feeling. And so when I talk about the malady, something happened before the drink. And, it's, and the malady is what happened before the drink. 
Well put. Well put. Okay, so so you so you're going for 363 days, two meetings, uh, um, but you know that the malady has not been taken care of, so to speak. Then what? Not not quite yet. Not quite. So I have a an event that I realized the malady was stronger than it had ever been. Are, are you talking about a work event or? A- well, I was actually on a plane. Okay. And so I'd been out of, I'd been out of town, and I'm flying back to Dallas mm-hmm. on a plane, and. I'm sitting up front. I'm sitting in first class. I traveled so much that I got upgraded quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting in first class, and the tray of alcohol comes out in first class, and there is a bottle of Bailey's. And I used to always love to have my ice cream and Bailey's in first class. And I saw the bottle of Bailey's and became what is best thought of as like a troll. I absolutely wanted that bottle of Bailey's more than I wanted life itself. And I would have done anything I could possibly do to get the bottle of Bailey's and absolutely consume it. And my wife had made a comment that stuck with me early on in my sobriety. Was she your wife at this time? She is. No, no, I mean, no, I know she is now. Was she your wife? We were engaged. You're engaged when you're having that plane trip, right? That is correct. Okay, gotcha. And she said, you need a program, not just meetings. And if you get in trouble, you need to get on your knees and pray and ask for your higher power, God, to remove the obsession. So here I am sitting in first class. I see this bottle of Bailey's and I am not in a good place. Every hair on my body is standing up and I am angry and agitated and, and just ready to just tear my skin off. The only thing I could do, because I'm sitting in first class, if I get on my knees in the middle of first class, there's going to be problems. The flight attendants are not going to like that. <laughs> no, they're not. In fact, they may land the plane. <laughs> so I put my head, I, I get my table out, and I put my head down on the table and begin my prayer. And... It was just, God, please remove the obsession. God, what's going on? God, I I need help. I need more than anything else. I need this obsession removed. The flight attendant comes up and says, sir, sir, is there something wrong? And of course, just like my untreated alcoholism, no, I'm fine. Everything's great. And she said, you don't look great. (laughs) I said, I don't feel great. And I spent the the rest of the flight praying for the obsession to be removed. I got off the plane. How long of a flight was it? About four hours. Oh, no, it was a long one. You're it was a long from one. from the Northeast to yes. the, something like that. I got you. Right. So I got off the plane and I called my wife, and here's the way that conversation went. I'm done with AA. I'm done with not drinking. I'm on the way to the bar. I don't care. I'm gone. I'm checking out. Because I was ready at that particular time to leave the world that I had um, been gifted, her, our, our relationship with my wife, my kids, and everything else. And I was ready to give all that up for that bottle of Bailey's or that next drink. And she said, I'm going to do this one time in your life. I'm going to talk you home, but I will only talk you home one time. You need to realize that you're an untreated alcoholic. And until you get a program, this is not going to get better. I will only do this once. And we talked all the way home. I woke up about 5 a.m. and began bawling. And I mean bawling like a little schoolgirl that just fell and skinned her knee. I put on my sunglasses and I went to the 7 a.m. meeting at Frisco Group and needed help. And when I walked in the meeting, is this it was day 363, by the this way? This is 364 at this point. So 364. This is, I'm 364 days sober. I'm gotcha. one day from being a year sober. And I'm at a 7 a.m. meeting, bawling because the malady was not fixed. It was not even close to being solved. Yes, the drink wasn't there, but I was miserable. That day, I got a sponsor. That day, I started working the steps. That day, I realized that I had a problem and for the first time in my life admitted that I was an alcoholic. 
It is the strongest day of my recovery. It's the strongest day of my life because I finally, for the first time, admitted that I was an alcoholic and really admitted, not just told somebody that, but admitted to my core and my soul that I was. And so therefore, I started working the steps and working through the program of recovery. You went, you reached the turning point, as they say. I did. One, one second here. So we will continue our conversation with Greg C., Mr. Random Day 09, in just a moment. Uh, just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. Uh, you can find us on the World Wide Web uh, I call it interweb sometimes. I did that once and my wife said, did you really say that? I am so embarrassed. I go, it's a joke. I know it's not an interweb, but nonetheless, there you will find approximately 30 plus other episodes you can listen to for free. You can also use the donate button on that website if you're called to do such. Please keep in mind the that this podcast is funded by you, the listener. SoberSpeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Okay, back to Greg C. So you reached that turning point. Yes. You got a sponsor. Yes. Take me from there. So then we start working through... The 12 steps. And what I, what I realized is I had a, what I call a task in front of me, which is to do my fourth, um, my fourth step inventory. And so all that, that entire year, you had heard about four step in there, right? You, you, I mean, you're going to meetings, you right. knew what a four step was, you knew what a fifth step was, and when it would come up in your mind, what, what would you, what would you think? It's not for me or what? Well, I thought, why, why do I need to do this? Right. <laughs> right. So let me step back one step because, Good. um, and, and the guys that I do sponsor, I, I iterate this a lot. Step one is the most important step that if you don't feel it, and this is my opinion, but if you don't really feel it in your soul, it's very hard to be difficult. It's, it's, it's difficult to get to the rest of the steps. I had to realize I was powerless, powerless. When I talk about admitting that I was an alcoholic, that meant that I was powerless. My life had become unmanageable. I'm on a plane at 363 days sober, <laughs> and I'm ready to take down the plane over a bottle of Bailey's. I think that's unmanageable. <laughs> Hey, there were no snakes on that plane, were there? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'm obsessed yeah. with the movie. I never even saw it. Snakes on a plane, <laughs> but yeah. I'm just, I'm just curious. Let me tell you, there were snakes coming out of my head. <laughs> right? I look like a Medusa. Um, and so, I realized I, that I was powerless over alcohol, and my life had become unmanageable. And in that plane trip, I even did step two, step three, which is turn my life and my will over to the care of God because he's the only person that got me off that plane. Um, and so as we look at kind of working with a sponsor and that type of stuff, I felt to my core steps one, two, and three and had no clue what I was about to undertake within step four, within the inventory, with making amends, with with all of the other, you know, um, even the daily, right? And so now I do daily gratitude every day and, and and I do the daily, you know, quite a bit. So let's talk about that a second. So sure. are, 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 you have a little moniker, right? I believe, and, and I'm not right. sure exactly what it's all about, but uh, it's called the Gratitude Man. The is Gratitude that Man. Okay. So is this like like the Candy Man, or is it? <laughs> yeah, it is kind of like the it, you know it, it it. So here's here's the what Candy happened. Man can. can the Gratitude Man can. Um, What's interesting is in high school, I was known as a G-man, and that's gone through a lot of different connotations about what that actually meant, but it was because my name was Greg. Greg. And again, if we go back to the important, I'm going to still kind of just chime back in on that, because all of a sudden, everyone believed me is, oh, it's Greg the man. So I was the guy, the mouth. I was the guy that had to be a center of a conversation. So the G-man just meant that I was the guy that was going to go represent everybody. You're the man. I'm the man, right? Right. In my head, not for, for reality. <laughs> I understand. And, yeah, and so I went to a Tony Robbins event, mm-hmm. and I knew that I had gratitude before that. So I was always, you know, here's what gratitude is, and, and yes, I'm giving gratitude, but Tony Robbins has a, um, a process. It's called priming. In which called you act- what? Priming. 
Priming? It's a breathing exercise. Oh, okay. And then what I did was take that breathing exercise. You breathe through your nose mm-hmm. and then out through your nose, and it causes oxygen and wakes up all the, yeah. the inhibitors Have in you, your brain. Do you know who Wim Hof is, by Absolutely. Chance? Okay. Yeah, I, the I ice practiced man. some of that. Yeah, the Iceman. The Iceman, yeah, absolutely. And for, for those of you out there who are wondering what that is, and you want to look it up, it's a W-I-M, Wim, last name Hoff, H-O-F, and uh, it's just something that I, I practice personally, uh, and I like it, and so Greg and I don't know that he's looking at me like, yeah, oh, I had awesome. no idea you did this. So anyway, so you're priming with these breathing exercises at the Tony Robbins event. Correct. And then I came home, and I began to start doing it from a prime. So what I do is I do 30 ups and downs with my arms. I do the Wim Hof, which is the breathing, which is through the nose, and you and you basically are activating all the, the brain cells and getting mm-hmm. everything going. And what I do is I do 30 ups and downs with my arms, and then I do five gratitudes. And then I do 30 up and downs with my arms, and I do five more gratitudes. So is, is this like, <laughs> just out of curiosity, is yes. this, oh, so th- this is during, okay, so this is during the event. Is everybody doing 30 up and down with their arms? Yes. Yeah, so everybody, if you've never been to Unleash the Power Within, he, he leads 9,000 people through doing this priming and really showing gratitude and really going into what your life is. Now, I changed it my way. And when you do the five gratitudes, yeah. does that mean you, like, you write them down or do you say them in your head? I, or? I, I say them in my head. Okay. And so I always do five and five, five gratitudes twice, okay. and then I do five desires. So okay. what are the desires for the day? And do all these 9,000 people have bars to grab onto to pull No, you just stuff? do your hands. Oh. And so everybody's just doing their hands. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm, not not weightlifting. I'm just, picturing pull-ups, and I'm like, wow, yeah. how do they get all those people? To, okay. No, just with their hands. My apologies. That's all right. <laughs> all so right. what I did was I took the exercise that Tony Robbins takes people through and mm-hmm. modified it for my own good, which is modified it a little bit, you know, to bring that practice into my daily event and to bring that into really showing gratitude and really showing desires. And so here I am. I'm out not only helping struggling alcoholics, but what I'm finding is through gratitude is I'm also being connected to people that are what we call normal people or people who do not have a problem with drinking. And all of a sudden, I'm helping people really all over the nation with how do they overcome the biggest challenges. And so I begin to start working with people about how to overcome, whether it be a drastic car wreck was this week. A gentleman at the gym that I work out at um, flipped a car three times. And I don't know the history. I don't need to know the history. But he said, my life has got to change. How can I change my life? And so I began to walk him through a process that what you've got to start doing is bringing gratitude in your life. And if you'll bring gratitude in your life, that what you will find is the challenges and everything else that seems so bad is not near as bad as what you gave it um, the credit for. And so I'm, I'm doing this to help people out. So I'm driving down the road one day, and I'm like, you know, I really want to find a way to connect with people. And so that's when I started the Gratitude Man on Instagram, shameless plug, the Gratitude Man on on Instagram and Gratitude Man on Facebook. And I began to start connecting people through my gratitude work. So I'm driving down the road. I'm like, okay, okay. And then all of a sudden it hits me. I'm the G-Man. The Gratitude Man. I'm the Gratitude Man. And I immediately pull over and I'm like, there's no way... This was six months ago. There's no way that the Gratitude Man is available on any of these mediums, <laughs> right? It, it, it can't be. Right. So the first one is Instagram. So I'm like, the Gratitude Man on Instagram. And guess what? It's available. And I'm like, got that. <laughs> so then, of course, I go to the URL, in which I do not have a web page up yet, but I'm working on that. But So then I'm like, I wonder if the gratitudeman.com is taken. And guess what? It's not. So I go get it. And all of a sudden, this Gratitude Man has been... Kind of um, taken on a life of its own. It has taken on a life of its own. And so what do you? What does the gratitude man do? So like, so like, every day, yes, I get up and I give space, what I call space, or I give energy to what I'm grateful for for the day. I do this every single day. So I prime. I give gratitude to the day. Prime means you're doing the breathing exercises yeah. and the uh, and you're not seeing us folks, but we got our arms going up and down here at the mic. Yes, and right. a, a shameless plug for Tony Robbins. If you want to look it up, look it up on YouTube. It's Priming by Tony Robbins, and you can watch this. You can watch 9,000 people do this. And so I, I get up, I do this, I, I, I do my priming, I do my gratitudes, and I do my desires. And my desires are what, what I want to do for that day. 
So sometimes it can be business. Sometimes it can just be patience. It can be different things that I try to give space to within desires. And so taking that back to the steps in recovery, you know, it is very, I mean, it's very similar, right? As you know, AA is not the first ones to invent these kind of ideas. Right. Uh, and it's very similar to, you know, thinking about our day when we get up in the morning and, uh, you know, thinking about where we can pack into the stream of life. Uh, you know, you could throw gratitude in there. But it's about, um, you know, 80, page 84, 85, 86, and 87, all that uh, a process of uh, looking forward through the day and seeing, you know, how I can help others is what it comes down to. It's 100% helping others. Yeah. And that as long as I'm focused on helping others, mm. my problems seem very small and are very minuscule in the grand scheme of things. You know, I heard somebody talking the other night. It was a, I don't even remember where it was. I, you know, I listened to different uh, podcasts and tapes and stuff like that. But I did hear somebody saying in a, uh, one of their talks, they said they had heard from somebody else. If you take the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and you take some scissors and you cut out all the references to helping others, you know, being with others, doing for others. And as in essence, at the end of that cutting out period, you will have a very, very light book. So that's what it's all about, right? It, it's enabling us to find a higher power, which will solve our problem for us, and it will help us to help other people. Right. And so that's where the gratitude man for me is someone that is focused around helping other people and showing people that gratitude can make it through any challenge that's possible in life. Um, what I find is two to three people a week that I totally do not know, do not expect, are somewhat attracted to just, I guess it's my energy, and are asking about, hey, by the way, I heard this or overheard you talking about this gratitude man. Can you help me understand what is this? And I help people with brain gratitude in your life, and it is, it, it, it is very similar the, the bottom line is, is that all of this would not be possible. Now I sound like a PBS announcement. All of this, <laughs> all of this would not be possible without my sobriety. Mm -hmm. Because someone who's trying to be so important doesn't ever focus on other people. Correct. And so I had to get sober. I had to really get a clear mind and be completely sober in thought. My malady of trying to be important I had to get all that solved in order to begin to start to really give back to other people. And so now what I find is as long as I'm giving back and as long as I stay within my personal gratitude, the desire to drink, the desire to drug, the desire to do un unhealthy activities, to be any part of an escape from what's going on daily becomes very easy. And so now, and I say this, right, since two, you know, 2009 I've been sober, it's easy to stay sober, but yet I have to work a program of recovery and I have to maintain my gratitude. And if I don't do that, it's very easy to, to be back on that plane chasing a bottle of Bailey's. Back on the plane facing a bottle of Bailey's. I know, you know, and by the way, I have been on a um Many of flights in the same situation where you are, and uh, I've had the flight attendants come up, and they, they don't ask if you want a glass of wine. Uh, many times I've had them say, would you like red or white, white. wine? <laughs> uh, it's not really a, a choice, and you're like, uh, no thanks, I've had enough. Uh, and they kind of cock their head. They don't quite get what you're saying at the time. But anyway, yeah. and I want to bring up the line in the book that Greg is uh, uh, referencing here. I, I believe it's on page 60, 61, uh, something like that. But it says, uh, when we straighten out, um, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically, right? And so Greg is talking about that spiritual malady, kind of filling that hole, if you will. Uh, uh, you've heard many people talk about it before, that God-sized hole that can only be filled with God. It can't be filled with Baileys. Uh, it can't be filled with other people, uh, other things. It can only be filled with the God of our understanding. And the interesting thing is that that spiritual malady grew from not a lot of participation with other people. Being an only child, I wasn't trying to be the center of attention because I'm trying to, to be more important than a brother or sister. There's a lot within 
just who I am as a person that built that. Um, that wasn't built with a lot of interaction from other people, and therefore it took a lot of me personally really digging into who I was to really get past that. And I hear a lot of you know people, and I did when I first came in, was blame, this is everyone else's fault or the reason I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Well, after working through the steps, guess what? <laughs> this has nothing to do with anyone else. Nope. It is all to do with me, my perception, and the way that I perceived the I did perceive the world that caused me to be the way that I was, and I drank because I didn't like who that was. And so today, that's that's been remedied, and it will continue to be remedied as long as I continue. Right, we are not victims, right? Uh, uh, it was it was nice. To, uh, it was uh, convenient, if you will, to play that uh, victim card for an extended period of time. But ultimately, you get into the program, you work through the steps, and you go, "Oh man, uh, yeah." This, there are some other people that did some things that uh, were wrong, if you will, in my life. But for the most part, I brought this all on myself. Right, it, it's a freeing. Uh, idea uh, or freeing uh, um, anyway idea yeah and I was a victim to brain to a brain tumor for about a year and a half mm-hmm. right everybody should feel sorry for me I've had a brain tumor I've had all this kind of stuff and I kept trying to drink because no one no one really paid attention to me that didn't make me more important and so therefore if you really look at it um, the excuse mill or the story we tell ourselves I could have died to that story Right, which has always felt sorry for myself and continue to say, well, you know, I have a brain tumor. When I had it, they told me I was never going to work an eight-hour day, never lift over a milk carton, and my life expectancy was eight to ten years. Wow. If I would have let that define me today, I'm in year 10 of of my brain surgery, after my brain surgery, and I'm completely recovered. (laughs) I didn't let that define me. And the only way that I got to that, that, you know, that comfort, if you will, or that ability was to sober my mind. Because if I would have kept drinking, that would have continued to be my story, and that's who I would have been. And I just, I would have really discounted what I've been able to have in life. Yeah, your allergy was, uh, I guess, what you would call twofold. Uh, It was not only the type of allergy that uh, uh, I had, but it also manifested itself in various ways because of your brain injury or condition, I should say. People used to call me in high school, Rose. How go? Because my face turns red because it was swelling from alcohol. <laughs> so every time I drink, everybody's like, oh, look at you. You look like Ro- Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You, you know, they'd all call me Rose because I would always be red. And that's what it was all from, which is an interesting thing that I never realized. And so, yes, I had twofold. Um, you know, and the one thing I will say about that is the more important one is that the malady, right? It's not the physical part to alcohol. It's what it really did for me. And, and how much it tore up my emotional and mental state, um, continuing to drink and to try to get through it and, and that. Um, the one thing that never changed. Whenever I started drinking, the world was the same as when I stopped. If we look at random day in 2009, it's just another day. It's what we do between the time that we arise and the time that we go to, you know, go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And so that goes back to that, whole, that, that same thing. Nothing's really changed. It's my perception that's changed. And so, you know, that's really where the random day in 2009 helps me remember um, what that really means within my heart. So I know you brought something else that you wanted to uh, read toward the end of this, if I'm not mistaken. I did. So we're kind of uh, getting to that wrap up time. So what is it you wanted to? So it's interesting. I start on page two. I proved to the world that I was important, which we've talked a lot about. I'm going to end on page one, on page 164, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. And what's interesting is, is the reason I end with that is because that's what the gratitude man is about. I don't help anyone with anything that I haven't personally experienced. And I'll give a quick example of that. I was at a Tony Robbins event, and there's a gentleman that has, ar- has no arms and no legs. And I see another gentleman who is normal, who has all his arms and legs, knock him out of his wheelchair. And I have to go figure out how to help him back in his wheelchair and to be completely, I was completely paralyzed. 
I came up to that individual and said, I'm sorry, I have no idea how to help you and I don't really know how to feel because I don't know what he's feeling. I can't help him with the challenges that he goes through on a daily basis. I can't help him with what it must feel to have no arms and no legs. But what I can do is help him with what it takes emotionally and mentally to be a better person. Because that's what I've had to struggle with myself is to be a better person. And so I'm not about helping anyone with anything that I haven't personally experienced. And so if I haven't personally experienced, I will find someone that may have personally experienced whatever the challenge may be, but I'm not going to help anyone with anything that I can't personally have my experience with. And so what I find is is that I limit to what I can help with with things that I've personally experienced. And I don't try to tread that water of, well, I'm going to go help somebody of something that they haven't experienced. And so page 164 with that, it obviously I can't transmit something that I haven't felt and I haven't done myself. So that's why I ended with that on page 164 because I've just got to give my heart. That makes sense. I like that. Usually I read something on page 164 to wrap us up, but I'm going to go with yours and we're going to end <laughs> with you. that because I like your reading and you have a story attached to it and I absolutely love that story. So, um, I really enjoyed that, Greg C. I sure appreciate you coming in. Uh, I'm sure all the listeners are going to enjoy it as well. Um, So once again, I want to let you know, you can go to our website if you would like, uh, soberspeak.com, and you can contact us. There's a couple different ways you can contact us. Uh, Number one, you can uh, just click on the contact us button button uh, and send us an email to feedback at soberspeak.com. But we recently installed a kind of, a, I guess you would call it a voice mechanism on there. When you click on contact us tab, you see a little microphone and you can leave us a message if you like. I always like to hear people's voice and inflection and what they're thinking, any sort of feedback that you may have. Uh, and we'll actually play it uh, on air, assuming it's uh, PG at least rated. And uh, so feel free to go ahead and leave us a message or contact us there. Um, Keep coming back. It works if you work it. Once again, thank you, Mr. Greg C., for coming in, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? Bye, everybody.